0: Welcome to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
1: Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
0: Find the Bloomberg P&L Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Year Ahead Summit at the Park Hyatt in New York City. Our next guest is no stranger to uh, news events or to policy changes in the world. Joining us now is Anne-Marie Slaughter, the president and the chief executive of New America uh, Foundation, uh, formerly uh, policy advisor in the U.S. State Department. Anne-Marie Slaughter, thank you very much for being with us. It's my pleasure. You wanted to focus on equality and women's rights and uh, the workforce, Uh, and I'm wondering if you could just uh, give us a sort of encapsulated version of of what your presentation (laughs) was about and what you hope to achieve.
2: So uh, the greatest thing about being here was that the audience was certainly majority men, often when we have this conversation it's women. And I had a very simple message, which was we are never going to get to gender equality unless we uh, change our expectations of men as much as we've changed our expectations of women so that all policies have to be gender neutral. You can't have maternity leave uh, and no paternity leave or long maternity leave, but short paternity leave. You have to assume all human beings have children. Think about same-sex couples, for instance, or adoption, but you also have to assume that you know, a man with children is going to slow down if you assume that a woman with children is going to slow down or assume a woman has a lead parent at home the way you assume a man has a lead parent at home. And finally, you're going to have to change the automatic assumption uh, that, you know, the person who works longest works best and actually look at results rather than FaceTime.
1: You wrote a story, an article, uh, why women still can't have it all in the Atlantic in 2012. Um You have two boys. Going back, if you could do it all over again, what would you have done differently to make it easier?
2: Uh, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Nothing, really. I mean, I you know, I was a tenured professor and my husband was a tenured professor. It doesn't get better than that. Oh, I know. My uh, right? father's a tenured <laughs> okay. professor. So, and I was a dean, and but Andy was a tenured professor, so we had that flexibility. So the only thing, you know, I could have not taken the job with Secretary Clinton, but I would n- never say I shouldn't have done that because even as hard as it was, it was totally worth it and um, you know I tell young women all the time if they're gonna go work on the National Security Council I say do it you know you'll love it it's great for your resume but just understand you're not gonna see your children so don't try to do both and if your spouse is not willing to be lead parent you've got a big problem because you really aren't gonna be able to do both so I wouldn't change it um, and you know I, I have been home as much as I'm ever home. My kids would say my definition of being home is different than many people's, but um, for for both of them all the way through the end of high school, and I wouldn't trade that.
0: Now, you served as a director of policy planning yep. for the U.S. State Department uh, from 2009 to 2011. Uh, you were the first woman to actually hold that position. What did you learn as a result of your tenure, and are there things that you wish you knew about what was accomplishable what was the real world versus the policy world can you give us some in uh, some insight
2: yeah well so i learned a lot so you have to start with the proposition having been a tenured professor i was 50 years old before i ever had a boss because the academy you do not have a boss so getting used to having a boss even a fabulous boss like, like hillary clinton took some doing um i would say I really did experience something I'd read about, but not not seen, that, you know, women... Anybody will be cut out of a meeting in Washington, but you, effectively to be in the meeting you have to act like of course I'm gonna be in this meeting which I think is harder for women to do than men. The other thing is that the you know, this should have been obvious too, but the in these case young men networks, they weren't old boy networks, they were young men, they were thirty two year olds, through from the White House through the Treasury to DOD to state That's where the information traveled, and information is gold in politics. And so there just weren't enough women to have that kind of network uh, so that you always were one step ahead of your boss.
1: Given your experience in international relations, I'd be remiss not to ask you, looking around right now. People are worried about a lot of crises around the world. Which do you think is most imminent and important to watch and that the U.S. could potentially help to ameliorate?
2: It's hard to know where, <laughs> where, to, where to start. Uh, you know, I do so imminent. We are watching the implosion of the entire Middle East, and we are not going to be able to cabin that. I disagree sharply with the president on his Syria policy because... I think not just refugees, but we're just incubating another whole generation of terrorists and we are destabilizing a region that is very important to us. So I think that, that is critical. The th- crisis I worry about most is a accidental collision or incident in the South or East China Sea, where for domestic political reasons, Japan goes on alert, Japan is our treaty ally, we back Japan, China goes on alert, China has to feed its nationalist youth. And suddenly it looks like 1914, where nobody really wants to go to war, but no one can see a way out. So that's one uh, I worry about. And then the last one, which we could do much more about is is going to collapse, and when Venezuela collapses, it's going to be bad for energy markets, it's going to be terrible for refugees, it could further destabilize Colombia. It, you know, we, we need to be paying much more attention and doing what we can to help stabilize that country, preferably with the rest of the OAS.
1: Thank you so much. <laughs> this was really, really tremendous. Anne-Marie Slaughter, a long-time uh, policy advisor to the president, but also a professor uh, and uh, now currently president and CEO of New America. Thank you so much for being with us. We heard a lot of really fantastic things for the year ahead. I'm (laughs) hopeful, Pim, I've got to tell you, a little bit more hopeful than I
0: was when I started. I'm hopeful for your coffee.
1: are here with an esteemed guest, Valerie Jarrett, uh, senior advisor to President Barack Obama and longtime confidant uh, here at the Bloomberg Year Ahead Summit to talk about some of the issues and some of the progress made in workplace uh, issues. Valerie, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Lisa and Pim. It's a delight for me to be here, and I appreciate you putting a spotlight on
3: these issues that are so important to working families. So what have some of the
1: biggest surprises been for you as you've pushed through some of your uh, workplace agenda?
3: Well, frankly, how easy it is to convince businesses about what's in their self-interest once you show them the data. So for example, um, eight years ago, it was hard to get businesses to really talk about investing in their workforce in the form of paid leave, paid sick days, workplace flexibility, affordable childcare, equal pay. It wasn't front and center. In fact, I would venture to guess if I'd been invited to Bloomberg, that wouldn't have been the topic that you'd wanted me to address. And I've been so heartened to see truly a transformation over the eight years in terms of the awareness and not just with the large companies, publicly held companies, but small businesses who care about their culture and care about retaining their workforce and recognizing it's not just enough to get them in the door. You've got to be able to compete in a 21st century um, marketplace and that's dependent upon recognizing the needs of the 21st century worker.
0: The President has just signed an executive order having to do with companies that do business with the federal government. I wonder if you could just expand on that.
3: Sure well we recognize right now that there's no national paid sick day requirement. Uh, and so there's legislation pending called the Healthy Families Act that would require companies to give their workforce at least seven days of paid sick time. Uh, I would mention also that we're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a federal paid leave paid sick leave policy. So in light of Congress's failure to act, the president signed an executive order saying, all right, well, at least if we're spending federal taxpayer dollars, we want to know that the workers are going to at least have seven days of paid sick time. And so if you want to do business with the federal government, then you're going to have to pay your workers um, paid sick days for seven days. Everybody gets sick. And I don't know about you, but if I go to a restaurant, I actually want the worker to be healthy. So this isn't just that it's good for the worker and good. If I'm a mom and my daughter's sick, I don't want to get Dr. Day's work because I want to stay home and take care of her. I want to be able to do that. And all too often, particularly lower wage workers, ha- can't afford to choose between going to work or missing that day's pay or let alone losing your job if you don't show up. So that's what the executive And
0: we And we're, we're very familiar as consumers about following the whole supply chain. In this case, it goes back to a person.
3: It goes back to a person, exactly. And if you're an employer, you're only going to be as good as the people who you employ. And recognizing that you've got to take care of them and invest in them is not just good for women. This is a working family issue, but it's also good for business, and it's good for our economy. We're now competing with companies all over the world. I just mentioned I was here several months ago at Spotify, and they just announced 12 months of paid leave. 12 months. Why? Because they're headquartered in Sweden where they are for 18 months and they're having a hard time with their workforce because the ones that work here are going, well, wait a minute, look what's happening over in Sweden. So they're needing to close that gap. And that's happening all over the world. And so companies that recognize the importance of investing in their their workforce are seeing uh, the results of that investment.
1: As the mother of two small children who works full time and has a husband who yeah, get works huh? full time, I totally understand this. But I also understand, you know, when you hear about equality of pay for women and you hear about the child care issues, how complicated it is and how there are so many factors that go into it with respect to uh, the wishes and sort of whether people are directed by virtue of getting uh, time off to be the primary caregiver. Going forward, what do you think needs to happen?
3: That's a really good question. Well, one of the steps the president has also taken is to require companies um, that are over 100 have over 100 employees to collect data on pay and send it to the Department of Labor. And it's a tool for the companies, but it's also a tool for policymakers to try to figure out whether or not there is a discrepancy in pay. And if you get to the fact that there is, then you can go behind the numbers and figure out why. Uh, We've also asked companies to take what we're calling an equal pay pledge. We have 57 companies around the country, big companies, you know, from Amazon to Google to uh, GM, who've taken this pledge, and what the pledge requires is once a year look at your data look at what are the structural impediments to equal pay and other impediments to keeping women in the workplace, and then make a commitment to try to um, deal with them. And what we do at the White House is try to show what are those best practices. And if we're keeping women in the workforce, half of our workforce is now comprised of women. Women are graduating from college at higher rates than men, thank you.
1: I'm familiar with that.
3: But in a field such as computer science, they're only staying in three years, and the number one reason they give for leaving the field, culture. And so it's also not just a matter of, least of having these important um, policies on your books, of your company, but you also have to create a culture where people feel comfortable taking them. At the White House, we have three months paid leave for men and women, equal, because we think they should. Well, be-
1: but, but just let's, for one second, I mean, your job is incredibly important. Yes, it is. <laughs> you do a lot of things. If, if you were in that position, would you be able to extract yourself for three months or yes. is this kind of a fallacy?
3: No, you could. And that's what—that's why I always give the White House as an example because what's more high-powered, high-pressured than that? Where do we all think we're indispensable? But we have had several senior members in the White House team, including my own deputy, who left for three months. And we have now created the kind of culture where if you don't take that three months— then there's peer pressure, and it's like, well, what are you doing back here? And so you reinforce it, and you know what happens while you're gone? Somebody steps up, and we all cover for each other, and we've created the environment where there isn't any resentment for it because it gives younger people a chance to move up for a second, and and sometimes that leads to promotion because people more senior get to see them in action. So if you can do it in the White House, and you can do it equally for men and women, and you work on that culture... And it takes a deliberate effort. You can't just say, yes, you can do it. You have to model. People can't be what they can't see. And so when the press secretary, who's a man, Josh Ernest, takes paternity leave, that sends a message throughout his entire core group that if the press secretary can be out of pocket, so can everybody
0: else. Just give you a quick uh, 20 seconds here. 8 years. Obama is uh, ending his two terms. You're going to be ending 8 years at the Washington White House and so. You are on. right. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to miss the most? Oh my gosh. Or what are you going to miss the least? Congress. Okay.
3: <laughs> that was a much easier cuz I'm going to miss so much. I'm going to you're going to miss The people, and I don't just mean the people with whom I work, but the people across this country who I have the privilege of meeting every day from all walks of life who are really just trying to do right by their family. And I've met the most ordinary people who do extraordinary things. And we try to lift them up by inviting them to the White House and see them around. Um, So I will miss just the diversity of my day. And I'll miss the majesty of coming through those gates every morning where I, every single day for nearly eight years, I just pinch myself I had the privilege of working at the White House.
0: How's the coffee?
3: I don't drink coffee, but I bet it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Everything else from the White House mess, Navy mess, is really good.
0: (laughs) Thanks very much for joining us. Valerie Jarrett, Senior Advisor to President Barack Obama. This is Bloomberg.
1: Pim. No better person for us to talk to in the morning when I could be on my third cup of coffee than Andrea Illy, chairman and Illy Cafes of Illy Cafes Spa, on uh, about his life. I want to talk to you first before we talk really about wants your you to get climate change. Cup of <laughs> I want to talk first about the fact that you are four years old when you had your first cup of coffee. Can you please explain to me how that how that came about as a, as a mom of a four year old?
4: <laughs> well. I was sipping coffee by the spoon, not drinking coffee Uh at four years old, but I was assisting my mother preparing the very first espresso. There was no espresso technology for home at that time. So she was grinding and dozing and waiting and then tamping. It took probably half an hour up to 45 minutes to get the right one. And we were probably spoiling. You know, wasting three of them in order to get the good end, but then the coffee was perfect. So all this has been uh, completely revolutionized with the first uh, paper pot that uh, my father was able to innovate uh, at the the beginning of the 80s. And suddenly, uh, uh, with the easy pots and the successor technology with capsules, this espresso technology became available worldwide and made espresso to become global and loved by you know consumers all over the world and made uh, basically espresso to become uh, the most uh, the, you know enjoyed way of uh, uh, drinking coffee even by tea drinkers and uh, filter coffee drinkers
0: let's talk about the the ely brand and the reach right now because you're here at the year ahead summit to learn, to meet, but also to share some of the new programs that you have put together at Ely to draw people in and to expand the brand?
4: Well, Ely is, uh, is the most global coffee brand. We are present in over 40 cou- 140 countries, and we do basically one-third of our sales in our domestic country, Italy. So I feel, when i hear here in New York, I feel really I'm at home. And uh, it's a family business. 100% controlled by the family, so we grow set finance which is a challenge because we are the uh, private company which grows the more relatively in percentage compared to, let's say, in stri- uh, other f- uh, strictly private one. So that means that only companies which grow more than us are publicly listed, okay? And... Um, uh, we are uh, obsessively focused only on quality. As a matter of fact, the company was founded upon the dream of my grandfather, the founder, to offer the greatest coffee to the world. And this dream became a mission: uh, delighting lovers of goodness and beauty all over the world with the best coffee nature can provide, enhanced by technology and the beauty of the arts. This is our mission. And we stick to it to such an extent that we are the only uh, coffee company in the world offering only one coffee, because if you want to offer the best, it can be only one. So the famous Illy blend, this is, it's done with the nine ingredients of the best arabica that we source directly from um, uh, all over the world in in, in 20 countries. So next week there will be uh, November 1st here in New York, the very first uh, international award uh, awarding the best growers of the nine countries uh, sourcing our 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 blend, and then there will be also the best of the best awarded by international jury. So with that, this Illy blend is served globally and uh, uh, omnichannel. You can enjoy in the hospitality, restaurants, cafes, uh, hotels, at home right. through different channels, on on the air. We are we have been recently appointed as the official coffee of the United Airlines. And uh, and so on the go, we also have this partnership with Coca-Cola for the Illy ready-to-drink. So, so you can get it everywhere.
1: Well, Andrea, you know, I'm, I, as I hear you talk, I'm kind of torn because I grew up in a family where my father is a professor and he spends a lot of his day tamping down the, the espresso and grinding it and we- measuring it. I mean, this is a very important pursuit in my household. On the other hand, you know, we hear so much about burning down the rainforests and you know, and flattening areas and and sort of the unsustainability of a lot of the coffee industry. Can you speak to that? I mean, how do you deal with that?
4: So it used to be. It's much better now. Uh, Coffee has been, uh, let's say, negatively known uh, until uh, three decades ago for deforestation and also harsh working condition in the producing countries. Situation has dramatically improved, let's say, since the the 80s, thanks to, uh, let's say, the revolution of Goume Coffee. Uh, the revolution of Gourmet Coffee made coffee to develop uh, three virtues which are pleasure, health and sustainability. Pleasure, there is much better quality around, uh, better preparation, better places of consumption, more variety so people can have fun uh, and, uh, and enjoy. Health: The per- perception of health has dramatically increased now, not only 60% of people, and the, re, the, rever- the, uh, the reverted ratio before, be before believe that coffee is good for health. There are several studies which confirm, all confirm that coffee makes you live longer and better. And even the uh, uh, World Health Organization did reclassify coffee from possibly carcinogenic to non carcinogenic so which is a huge achievement. And last but not least, sustainability did incru- improve. Environmental one, uh, no deforestation any longer. In the last two decades, there has been a 50% increase in production with no more hectares, so no more de- deforestation. And we can al- always uh, confirm that uh, coffee planting uh, contributes positively to uh, carbon sequestration. You know? uh, also, the uh, water consumption has been dramatically reduced and the water pollution has been uh, very limited. So this is uh, all uh, positive. Of course, on average, there can be always negative situations, and the social one, we, the only thing that we can say is that the uh, human development index of most of the producing countries in the last 20 years did improve. Is it enough? No, it is not enough. There's still a lot to do, but th- the situation is improving.
0: Can I just give you about 20 seconds, very short. You're on your way to Boston, home to Bloomberg 1200, but if you can just tell us, what are you planning to do in Boston?
4: Well, in Boston, I'm going to have a, a conversation at the university love uh, about the coffee culture in general. Where? This, this just just tell
0: people where it is and what it's about. Well,
4: this is uh, at the university at uh, Boston, and uh, the detail I will tell you uh, <laughs> later. <It's> still confidential. <laughs> all, right, but all right,
0: all right, all right. But you're going to be at Boston uh, University. Yes, it,
4: it was a private, <laughs> let's say. All right. <laughs> you're
0: going to learn everything you need to know about coffee. Thank you very Thank much. You. Uh, we Thank certainly cool. did. Yeah. Uh, Thank you Andrea Ely, he is the chairman of Ely Cafe. That is the worldwide... Uh, do, did you feel like you got a little coffee just even sitting uh, next to Andrea Ely? Yes,
1: to someone who has just experienced it and lived it for so
3: long. I
0: think Tremendous. he's going to get you a cup of espresso right now. I hope so. Yeah. All right. This is Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox. My co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. <laughs>
1: Take a look now at Apple and what to expect after the bell today when they report uh, earnings. David Garrity, CEO at GVA Research, here with us now. Dave, what are you expecting to see from Apple?
5: Lisa, thank you. We're looking today for uh, revenues to be approximately um, $47 billion, which is going to be down about 9% year over year. Earnings of about $1.65, which could be down about 16% year over year. In terms of iPhone shipments, a uh, number of about forty-six million, which actually is down as well. Note that for Apple, this is going to be the third consecutive quarter in which you've seen actually revenues and earnings down year over year. Yeah,
1: but nothing can stop them, right? I mean, their shares are up uh, almost fourteen percent this year. No, so. certainly. So who cares? If,
5: if we look back over the last six months, I mean, the stock's up almost thirty percent, while the S and P five hundred is up, you know, roughly about ten. So clearly, people trading what typically has been sort of the product cycles for Apple. Obviously buy the stock ahead of a new phone launch with the iPhone 7. You know, certainly they've been benefiting here not just from what they've been doing with their own product, but the fact that Samsung has basically fully recalled the Galaxy Note 7.
0: I'm just trying to wrap my mind around the fact that this is a company that at least has already done or will do $47 billion in profit, right? That's more, I think that GM did sales for the quarter of like 42.8. That you
5: know, 40. might be a good year for GM.
0: Right. No, no, this is <laughs> a great, well, and this they is a they have more
1: ten- cash on their balance yes, sheet well, than like Bolivia has it, for their
0: entire economy. Yeah, I mean, this is, it, 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 I, I just want to try to get my mind around the juggernaut that this machine is because people keep looking, and I mean in, in relation to the stock, not into the G. whiz, we're going to have an iPhone 16 and it's going to make dinner for me. The, the stock itself, do you think it's underpriced?
5: I think the stock right now still has some further legs on it and certainly has been assisted here by Samsung. I mean, we are going into the strongest period, seasonally, year-end holiday shopping in the Western Hemisphere. You we go into the first quarter of next year, you have the Lunar New Year in China. But
0: you see, you're talking about the consumer. I'm talking about the stock. Here's my, my, my thesis, right? Is that if you want to buy into the revolution that smartphones are going to be with us forever, if you want to invest in a company who produces a, a balance sheet and a profit and loss statement that you can read in English and understand, there really are not that many out there, right? I mean, Samsung has its, and I'm not saying
5: problems, no problems, but what else is there? Right, Apple is still very much your sort of your default way to trade smartphones uh, on a pure play basis. Clearly, though, if you look at some of the things that are being enabled by the technology, Google remains a far more interesting company in terms of what it's actually making possible. And I'm not going to say that the Google Pixel is going to be suddenly like that's the new phone, the
0: new phone that they came out with. Correct,
5: and uh, it's not. Huawei
0: making? Is that Huawei making it for them? That's actually it's HTC. HTC, I beg your pardon.
5: Right, but but in terms of having the Pixel out, I mean, having the Galaxy Note 7 from Samsung fully off the market. Clearly, consumers want to have a competing product relative to whatever Apple has. So in some respects, in this holiday season, it becomes default, perhaps, the Google Pixel. So, so there,
1: there's so much optimism here and, and, and good feeling. I have to bring it down a little bit and talk about Twitter. Um, you know, They said that they're going to plan job cuts, perhaps uh, as much as 300 people. Uh, they're expecting to report earnings later this week. What could they say that wouldn't be regarded as a catastrophe? From the market's point of view,
5: I mean the issue around uh, Twitter primarily is just the fact of slowing user growth. I mean, less engagement. I mean, there's only so much that you can do historically within the confines of 140 characters. Granted, they've expanded this. If you want to start writing novels on Twitter, <laughs> you might think about it. But here? nope. But nobody uses Twitter for having anything longer than basically sort of a very short, concise thought. Uh, and obviously, when Donald Trump goes away, I mean, obviously the Twitter user rates are going to go down. Um, but. The thing that's more important to look at in terms of Twitter is that they've gone out to the market in terms of possibly looking at a strategic engagement of sale, obviously pretty much everybody's walked away. Um, clearly the company is sort of saying, we need to retrench and we need to retrench now. And they really haven't figured out where they're going to go with this. So I'm not going to say here ahead of Thanksgiving that we take Twitter and stick a fork in it, but nonetheless, <laughs> until such what time as, as things to come, well, it won't last that long. <laughs> It'll Ooh. only be a morsel, Ooh. not a full meal in Ouch. any event. In any event. But the issue for Twitter here is that you know, they, they've tried to go, they've tried to engage, they've failed. And, and there has to be a retrenchment. Uh, the question is, how far does this extend going out into 2017?
0: David Carradine, are we going to be talking about Twitter in the next year ahead? I mean, we're at the twenty—you know—we're at the year-ahead Bloomberg Summit here at the at the Park Hyatt. Um, we've got a variety of guests looking at. Am um, are we really going to be talking about a company that does about 2.2 billion in sales, loses half a billion a year, and has a market cap of 12 billion? Oh yes, it just happens to be Twitter. I mean, why do we care? I would I would only argue
5: company? that Twitter is something that you'll be looking at in the rearview mirror in 2017 as basically being technology roadkill. The <laughs> You're going to continue to talk about companies like Facebook. Obviously, Apple's going to have the 10th anniversary of the 2000 of uh, the, the iPhone coming out. It's expected that the next iteration of the iPhone, the iPhone 8, is going to be something more significant. The company has the opportunity, given Samsung's missteps, to possibly move ahead of Samsung, which is important from an innovation standpoint. People have been very critical of what Apple has not been doing in technology, whether it's around artificial intelligence, whether it's around virtual reality, augmented reality. There's clearly much wood for apple to chop so to speak well done
0: thank you very much uh, David Garrity he is the chief executive of GVA research I'm not I- giving
1: up I'm not giving up my uh, Twitter account
0: don't give you you're very good.